personalization is this idea that uh, the user uh, uh, feels heard that they can provide us data and inputs that help us uh, uh, show them what they're looking for welcome to leading ai products a show where i talk to fellow ai leaders about their journey in transforming data and ai ideas into products i'm your host sandeep uttamchandani chief product officer at unravel data co-founder of ai for everyone a non-profit and author of oridi's book the self-service data roadmap in each episode i share conversations with fellow ai product leaders and go deeper on a broad range of topics involving technology teams product execution challenges encountered and really the takeaway lessons that you can apply in your ai product journey my guest today is amit agarwal the co-founder and cto of the yes a retail app and platform that focuses on women's fashion and clothing the yes optimizes product personalization using ai ml and in this fascinating talk uh, amit shares insights on a broad range of topics from technology building blocks measuring success criteria of ai retraining models to keep up with changing fashion trends team hiring and really lessons learned throughout the journey so without further ado welcome amit welcome amit to the podcast great having you uh, thank you sandeep great to be here amit to kick us off it would be great to know a little bit about yourself your current role as well as your professional journey yeah um you know i'd love to talk about uh, sort of my journey and the way i think about my career is that uh, i've spent a lot of time leveraging technology and in particular data machine learning and ai to build great consumer experiences um you know earlier on in my career i worked at microsoft on the bing search engine and i mostly worked on problems related to web spam and web search ranking and this is almost 15 years ago interestingly uh this is way before deep learning was uh, was a hot area and we were using uh neural nets to do web search ranking so that was uh, a big innovation at the time uh then i went to google at google i worked on ads again you know leveraging data and machine learning to build advertiser tools in the, in that case improving the experience of advertisers and giving them more insights um and then i was at groupon uh working on personalization and we transformed the business at groupon to be a daily deal model where everyone in the same city would see the same deal to a really personalized model where every user in a in a given city would see a different email highly personalized to that user and then most recently before uh, starting the yes that i'll talk to uh, talk about i was uh, chief technology officer at bloomreach and bloomreach is in the space of building a digital experience platform but the but the rough idea is to use machine learning and data and algorithms to help uh, bloomreach's customers build personalized and relevant digital experiences for their users so as i said a lot of my uh, um, you know experience and work over the years uh, has been about really thinking about consumer experiences thinking about personalization thinking about search and more specifically how to leverage data and machine learning to build those consumer experiences and so about uh, three uh, and a half years back we started the yes 
Um, the high-level idea behind the yes uh, and the high-level thesis is actually pretty simple. It is uh, this belief that online shopping as we know it today, um, despite all the advances in data and machine learning, those experiences are still very static and very much one size fits all. And you know, we think of some of the other domains, uh, for example, like music, uh, where you know something like Pandora or Spotify provides a highly personalized experience. You know, every playlist is tailored to the user, and it's also a very dynamic experience in the sense that it's always learning and evolving and getting smarter and getting to know you better as a user over time and improving. And so our vision at the Yes um, is to bring uh, that level of personalization, in fact, even more and dynamic uh, experience over to shopping, which is a, in some ways a much harder problem, but also we believe that it is a big opportunity and that users want that, um, that new experience in the shopping space. So, so that's what the yes, uh, Yes's mission is. Diving then straight into you know, understanding a little bit about the yes, more from, you know, the use cases that are AI related. Maybe if you can highlight some of the key areas where AI is playing a key, uh, like, you know, important role. You know, we, um, you, know, you know, we view AI in a very broad way. You know, uh, I believe that uh, AI is going to touch and impact every aspect of the business that we do, you know, whether the, it's the user experience, whether it is customer service, whether it's uh, you know how we onboard brands, and so you know we think of AI as a pretty broad um, technology, almost like software that could, that should and would eventually in our business have a positive impact on all aspects of customer experience in the business. But really, the area that we're super focused on as a startup right now is the area of personalization. And again, personalization we view pretty broadly. You know, to us, personalization is not simply about uh, showing a user the right product. Uh, it is <clears throat> more broadly a con conversation that we're having with the customer. And so the way we view personalization is this idea that uh, the user uh, uh, feels heard, that they can provide us data and inputs that help us uh, uh, show them what they're looking for, and that, they, uh, that we're constantly learning and improving and getting smarter. Uh, by talking to the customer. Um, so that's how we view personalization. And that's one of the main areas that we've um, kind of applied AI to. And uh, you know, definitely a lot, of, uh, a lot of different opportunities. We've thought very differently about that space, about personalization and how we apply AI than kind of the traditional uh, ways of doing personalization. But I would say that's the main area that we're really focused on right now. Talking about personalization, can you walk us through the user experience from the time the user first comes to the website. So let, let, let me start with the user experience and then I'll go into the technology behind the scenes and how it's different. Uh, so the user experience is, um, you know, we have a, uh, we launched a iOS app. So the user comes into the iOS app and um, they go through a short quiz. And that quiz is really designed to get information about the user things like that, the brands that they like. You know, one of the things, uh, another thing that we ask in the quiz is that we show them three uh, clusters of three images and ask them if they like that style. And that's a, a visual way for us to get information on, around the styles that they like and the in and, and, and general their style. And once they go through uh, the quiz, 
the algorithm learns from the answers and we uh, land them on a feed of products that is uh, personalized to that user. Uh, throughout the product, um, anywhere that the user sees a piece of content, uh, they can yes or no the content. So they can give us a signal right there explicitly you know, whether they like the content, it could be a product that they like and they can say, yes, I like it or no, I don't like it. And that signal is uh, is very explicit. It's a very explicit signal from the user. It's sort of uh, something that the users love to do. They love this idea of giving us feedback in such explicit form. And that signal feeds in directly in real time to the algorithm that then changes the recomm recommendations for them. So it's not, uh, it's, it's almost a real time uh, change to the user model. Behind all of this, um, you know, the technology that we've built, there's, there's a few kind of different things that we do differently than other personalization systems. So number one, um, you know, we rely a lot on content-based personalization. We obviously use user behavior data, but the core of our algorithm really relies deeply on uh, content-based personalization. And um, what I mean by content-based personalization is that we try to deeply understand products um, you know, what's the style of a product, what's the price point, what's the brand, what's the size and fit of the product. And we try to deeply understand user preferences and then we map the two. And, and um, the way I, uh, this is different than for, for example, user behavior database personalization, which is more based on how users in the aggregate behave. So collaborative filtering is something that I put in that category where you're using a lot of data to say, you know, users who bought this also bought this. And so because you bought this, you're gonna like this other product. So while that's very useful in the domain that we operate, we believe because, you know, in the fashion domain, there's a lot of new brands coming online all the time. There's uh, skew churn and, and buying is a very personal decision. We believe that content-based personalization is, is really powerful and needs to be, uh, needs to be leveraged. So, um, you know, because we uh, use a lot of content-based personalization, there's a lot of kind of underlying problems that need to be solved in order to uh, do that, where we uh, leverage AI very heavily. So for example, we take every product and we um, have a pretty big knowledge graph that we map every product onto. And that is a combination of natural language processing and computer vision and combining the two to kind of almost come up with thousands of attributes for every product, all the way ranging from sleeve and sleeve type, color, pattern, neck type, neck, um, yeah, you know, uh, and additional attributes about the product. So that's sort of step one. So pretty heavy usage of uh, computer vision and natural language processing at scale. And, you know, we do this um, across uh, lots and lots of brands. So we don't rely on standardization of data. It's not like we rely on a certain taxonomy from the brands. We just take the raw description and the raw images and we map everything to our knowledge graph. That's number one. Number two, um, you know, we spend a lot of time uh, thinking about style. And style is a very broad term. It applies to fashion, it applies to uh, furniture uh, and other soft good categories. Uh, but we uh, sort of create a computer vision embedding that encodes style. And, um, you know, we do it in a way that's domain specific. So, um, you know, style is not just about the color and the pattern of the product. It actually goes deeper than that. With, you know, uh, for example, a sleeveless shirt is very different than a full sleeve shirt, even though it might be actually exactly the same in all other 
respects. And so understanding that and teaching that to the algorithm, to the machine learning models is, is, is something that we spend a lot of time on. And then finally, when if once you have this embedding or this, we call it the style DNA of every product, um, you we then create personalization models on a per user basis, uh, which is to say, you know, given all of the data that we have from the user in the form of quiz answers and other yes and no input, how do we, given a product, tell whether the user would like it or not? Um, so we, you know, we spend a lot of time building those models. You know, the, these models, uh, the way we build these models, which is also kind of, uh, there's some innovation there, is that these models are rely on a small number of high quality signals rather than a very large number of low, low quality signals. So traditionally, you know, these algorithms rely on click data and so on. We actually rely on more explicit signals from the user, but the, the, the good thing is that they're more higher quality. The bad thing is that there's less of them. So we've spent a lot of time kind of trying to leverage that uh, those signals. And finally, the fourth thing that we spend a lot of time on is uh, inspiration. You know, one of the critiques of personalization algorithms is that they uh, really focus the user on what they like without inspiring them with new things. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about how we inspire the user and how, how do we kind of train our models to be inspirational in addition to showing what the user would like. And one of the things that helps us there is that uh, it is so easy for the user to give feedback in the product. And so even if we inspire the user and the user doesn't like that, uh, they can very easily give that feedback and the algorithm learns very quickly. I think there's a lot to unpack, uh, especially in this domain of personalization applied to fashion, which as you pointed out has uh, qu quite a few interesting challenges. So to start off here, Amit, what are some of the recent AI advancements over the last two, three years that make solving this problem possible today, maybe compared to, you know, in the past? Yeah, um, I think, um, I think number one, um, you know, AI generally, um, as a field overall kind of has become much more advanced in the sense that the amount of uh, data that we are able to train on um, is, is in, in sort of the sophistication of models across the board has gone up. And that, that helps us a lot. So, you know, for example, we leverage a lot of the underlying computer vision models that have really, um, you know, that technology has really advanced in the last two or three years. Um, so, for example, segmentation is an area that has come a long way in the last two or three years. Um, and so we leverage a lot of those advances as we uh, do things like attribute extraction. So we're able to segment images, identify objects, um, and, and build models that are very accurate because we have access to underlying models that have been trained on a large, uh, large um, corpus of image data. Uh, so generally, I think that all the advances that have come up with being able to train machine learning models using vast amounts of data have helped, helped us. Um, that's sort of more on the core technology side. But the other thing that actually is a, um, is, um, has really helped us is that machine learning has become much more accessible. Uh, you know, I think with the cloud vendors like AWS and, and Google Cloud, uh, uh, putting a lot of functionality and making it available to um, uh, to companies like us, um, you know, it's not like it couldn't be done before. It's just that it takes much less time. 
So, you know, the time to market has gone down. So we could potentially do the same things that we're doing today, three years back, but now it's, um, you know, and now it's much, uh, much faster. Um, so those are, you know, that's, uh, that's something that's uh, definitely helped us uh, a lot. Um, and then generally, I would say, um, you know, we, uh, we, uh, you, the ability to manage large amounts of data uh, over time has become simpler as well. Um, and so, um, you know, tools around um, storing and accessing data have become much more powerful that allows us to focus on kind of training models and evaluating them rather than sort of the uh, just uh, kind of collecting the data. Now, Amit, if we sort of just break down AI into three broad buckets, it's perception, learning, and reasoning. Um, and, and the reason I'm breaking this down is now, as you look at the personalization problem, for each of these three buckets, uh, good to hear what aspects uh, of the solution uh, or in a sense, like, you know, maybe potential innovation in, in one or more of these buckets that is in play for building this personalization. And how would you, Sadeep, how would you define each one of them? Yeah, so a perception would be more in terms of inputs. Inputs could be visual. Um, so I think the computer vision part or the textual part or speech, which may not be applicable over here. Um, the learning part is the ability to, for the system to take the data and um, extract out and understand the models. And, and reasoning essentially would be, um, you know, the kind of, I would say, logic that gets applied. It could it not just be rules, heuristics, it could be a combination of what is learned combined with some fail safe, um, I would say, uh, things that you would build in. Yeah. Did, did that roughly makes sense, the three, the three buckets there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your question is what's sort of the advances or what's the innovation in each one? Yes. Yeah. yes. Well, you know, I think um, take uh, the perception as an example, you know, the, um, you know, if you think, think about product and product search, you know, uh, historically, um, until actually very recently, it has been based mostly on text and IR techniques. And uh, the idea that, um, you, you know, the idea that uh, images have so much data has, hasn't been leveraged so far. And so I would say kind of the big innovation on that side is, uh, is just, you know, and this is happening across the industry, being able to use the image data to really learn more deeply about products and more uh, deeply about uh, user preferences as well. And so that's a huge, uh, uh, huge advance that's happened uh, recently. Um, in around the uh, learning side of things, I, I, as I said, you know, I think just just the sophistication of the models and the pre-trained models has has enormously gone up in recent years. You know, things like segmentation and accurately segmenting products. You know, things like matching street images to product images, which is you know, let's say there's a social image. Uh, where a user is a uh, person is wearing a product and matching that to an actual product those things because of the sophistication of the models and the accuracy of the models is, has become uh, you know much more uh, much more feasible and on the reasoning side i think our um, our kind of big differentiation and big innovation there has been really combining the 
AI in the UI, and that's what, that's what we call it internally, is that it's not enough for us to build a great machine learning model. It is really important for us to think end-to-end -end about the user experience. So we need to connect the machine learning model uh, with how users are seeing the output of that machine learning model in a way that's, uh, um, that's understandable to them, and then complete the loop where the user can provide us feedback and it feeds in real time to the algorithm. That idea of thinking holistically about the about the algorithm and the user experience, I think, is still pretty new. You know, most uh, most people think about AI as a black box algorithm that does magic. We believe that it's actually uh, it has to work really closely with the user experience, and so that's that's an area that we've spent a lot of time. I think I'd put that in your bucket of reasoning, where we actually want the user end user to be involved in the machine learning and learning process where they feel somewhat in control because they're providing input. So I'll give you an example of, um, of this. So one of the things that we do um, is uh, in the product, um, the user can say yes and no to products. So they can say, yes, I like this product or no, I don't like this product. One of the features that we built is that, um, you know, if a user, uh, we've built a model where based on the user's yeses and nos, it can predict what attribute of the product the user doesn't like. So for example, a simple but contrived example is that the user has said no to a lot of yellow products. And so we've built a model that says, you know, I think the model can output a probability saying the user probably doesn't like yellow. What we then do is we pop up a question to the user saying, do you not want to see yellow products? And the user can say yes and no. And that, that's kind of an example maybe that fits into your reasoning bucket, which is, you know, what that does is it's actually a very popular feature with our users. And the reason it's popular is one, the user says, well, I, um, I understand how you're using my input. So they're more incentivized to provide more input. They, uh, they feel being heard. And number three, we're getting positive reinforcement. It's not like we're just removing yellow products, even though the user didn't mean that. We're actually um, getting uh, a really high quality signal from the user, so it leads to a better output for the user. So that kind of um, you know thinking where we combine the algorithm, in this case, a model that pre predicts their propensity to like or dislike an attribute with the user interface, I think we're doing more and more of that. Got it. Amit, how do you measure success or what are some of the success criteria by which you, you know, sort of track how good the, the system is performing? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question and it's a very hard question. And to be honest, we are still learning about it. And so I'll give you some examples of things that we measure. Uh, you know, obviously we ask customers, um, you know, does this feel like you? Does this store feel like you? And that's a great way to get that signal, except that it's a high, um, you know, high cost way. You know, you're asking the users to do work. Uh, but we've, we've seen that that's actually the most reliable way of learning about how you're doing. It's high cost and it's actually high turnaround. You can't run an A-B test that easily using the signal. So that's the issue with that. Um, so we do always, we're always kind of thinking about metrics. So one of the metrics that just is an example, going back to this idea that we had yeses and nos in the product. You know, one of the signals that we can, metrics we can use is what's the ratio of yes and no. And the idea being that if we were doing a good job of personalizing, users would have many more yeses and than nos. And you know, intuitively, when we first started that, that's what we thought. 
except that we uh, discovered uh, that uh, you know higher yeses doesn't necessarily mean more engagement. And the explanation for that is that users are not necessarily looking to just see the things that they like. They also want to be inspired. They also want to be uh, you know put outside their comfort zone. Um, and so um, uh, you know what what uh, and that kind of speaks to the the uh, necessity of uh, being inspirational and and exploring. So you know that intuitive metric has you know it, it, we still measure it, but it doesn't tell the whole story. So um, you know we we but we still look at that. We look at uh, um, you know product clicks. We lo look at conversion rate, and it's actually a combination of all of the above that eventually tells you the story. Uh, but we actually haven't found a single thing that uh, that tells us uh, captures the whole user experience. Makes sense. You mentioned something interesting, which is the the fact that they are responding doesn't necessarily mean that they are engaging and and further further from that engaging leading to conversion which is eventually getting into the business matrix um, is there any kind of correlation between how the business does to that that helps you sort of go back and tune the algorithms any any examples uh, in that category well the um well, just to clarify, we do see like like uh, what, uh, there is a correlation between engagement and conversion. Uh, what I was getting at is that uh, you know specifically this metric around number of yeses to noes. You, you know what I was talking about was more yeses as a percentage doesn't translate to higher conversion. So we actually have a lot of users who are super engaged, and they give us a lot of yeses, but they also give us a lot of noes. And those users are equally or even more engaged than some of the users who just give us the yeses. So just the positive signal is not necessarily correlated to engagement and conversion. But the, you know, pretty much everything that we do in some ways, um, you know, we're trying to uh, optimize the end business and the end businesses try to conversions. Um, I, th I think, again, the, the big issue with using conversions is that that's, uh, more down funnel, right? And so it's harder to measure and harder to optimize on. And so we are always trying to find proxies. You know, for example, one of the interesting things we found is that, uh, you know, number of times a user viewed a product is a uh, is an important signal to indicate uh, indicate um, engagement. Uh, you know, the more the users viewed a product uh, and and went to the details of the product, the more correlated it was to overall engagement on overall conversion. But, you know, we're kind of always sort of looking at that co uh, relation, correlation between the end business metrics um, and, the, um, and the user, uh, you know, upstream metrics that would give us an indication. Um, the other thing I would say is that we're really focused on, we're also really focused on the user experience. Um, and again, we found that the best way of collecting uh, user experience is more qualitative. Um, that the that the um, metrics uh, are uh, useful, but you know we always go back periodically to getting the more qualitative signals where we ask them questions. You know, do you like the experience? Do you uh, would you recommend it? Do you, does this experience feel like you? Uh, and then if they say no, then kind of getting more details. You know, that gives us a lot of data around. Uh, around improving the product. So one of the early pieces of feedback that we got was 
um, well, the price doesn't make sense. This doesn't feel like me because of the price. And we, what we learned was that, um, you know, price can have a polarizing effect. Uh, what that means is that uh, there is a certain price range, pretty big price range for every user where they're reasonably comfortable with what they see. But outside that price range, it becomes something the way they stop trusting the product. And so, uh, uh, so for example, if there's a user who shops uh, more luxury and that user sees a really cheap product, they're gonna stop trusting it and vice versa. If a user sees a really expensive $10,000 product, they'll stop trusting it and they'll say, this doesn't work. And so for example, one effect of that is that we spend a lot of time learning about that range of price for the user. And that range of price depends on the category of the product and the occasion that they're shopping for. It depends on a large number of different factors, but it's really important for us to learn that range uh, in which the user is comfortable. Now, one challenge here, Amit, essentially is tastes evolve over time uh, and humans yeah. sometimes tend to be flickle as well. Yeah. Um, so there's an interesting aspect of drift in your, in your model. How, how do you account for that? Yeah, well, I think that the thing that really helps us, um, I, 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 there's two answers to that. One thing that helps us is that our model, the way we build the model, uh, our, kind of our stack, is that one, we're getting continuous data from the user. So as I said, you know, the users can say yes and no. We show something, they can respond. And our product is built in a way that they feel very comfortable responding. And we get a lot of data. So we're getting continuous data and we're always retraining our models. So it's not like for a given user, the model stays static. It's getting retrained all the time as we get new data from the user. So that, that really helps the drift from happening. Um, the other thing I would say is that uh, um, I think we, um, uh, you know, the, the, the goal of personalization, uh, you could think of it in different ways. You know, for example, you could say, well, the goal of personalization is to show the best products to you. Um, that's one formulation. That's a very common formulation. But another formulation is the goal of personalization is to remove polarizing products for you. And what we've learned is that uh, you know, your definition of what the best product for you is change, changes over time. A lot of users actually don't know what their best product is, but they really understand what they don't want. And, and that doesn't change that often. And so one of the things that we've kind of uh, started to think about is, is should the goal of personalization be to really learn those things that you don't like versus trying to learn the things that you like? Um, and it leads to different algorithms, like it's you know two sides of the same coin, but it leads to different optimization functions. So that's the second thing that we um, we do. And the third thing that uh, that we do is just this kind of deeper um, engagement with the user. You know the example that I gave you, where we don't just make a change. In in some cases we do make the change, but in other cases we'll kind of verify with the user. You know, do you really think that's true? And so, you know, kind of making you, the user a part of that learning process, I think is important and a big area of innovation, I believe, you know, kind of most machine learning algorithms operate in a silo where they say, I'm going to take the data um, and work with it. Well, what if you change, flip the problem and say, well, I can change the data that I can get. What would you do in that case? And that's the approach that we take. And that's because the reason we can take that approach is that we control the user experience. 
are there specific aspects in addition to learning from the user, like learning from the broader market or the broader community in general? Yeah, um, yeah I think we do, uh, we do learn from the broader community. We also kind of, uh, uh, we, are, um, we have a large catalog and so we're kind of seeing the new products that come in and so we can use that. Uh, but one, one important aspect here um, that we do leverage a lot is we ex- leverage domain expertise. And, um, and, and we do, you know, to some extent, you could think of machine learning as a way to kind of um, magnify uh, and, and kind of uh, run at scale human expertise, right? That's one way of using machine learning. So we, we spend a lot of time, you know, our, our goal is not to remove the human from the loop. We actually want the human in the loop. We want the domain experts to weigh in, but then we want uh, uh, machine learning to, to operate that at scale. So uh, to answer your question, we do um, use fashion experts to kind of uh, tag the new trends, you know, kind of tell us about what's, uh, what are the new things that are coming in. And then um, we then use our machine learning algorithms to kind of uh, tag our full catalog for those trends. Um, and also, you know, I think machine learning algorithms are good at two things. They're good at scaling human knowledge. And then they're also good at finding hidden patterns in the human knowledge. Um, and so, you know, that's the approach that we take for trends is can we get humans to uh, tag these trends and then use machine learning algorithms to scale them out. Product standpoint or product thinking standpoint, when you make changes to your models or add new algorithms, so to speak, how do you verify verify for correctness and debuggability, you know, before you launch, launch out at scale? Yeah. Um, I think we, we actually do kind of the, uh, you know, sort of what's in industry accepted. So, you know, our first line of uh, kind of validation is through uh, small scale qualitative testing. And so, you know, let's say, and you know, we do we do this all the time. We make a change, and we will uh, do a side by side comparison with internal users or kind of our you know beta users, you know, our users who are kind of more early adopters and are more deeply involved in the product. So we'll ask them, you know, which one do you prefer and why? And so it starts with that qualitative testing. Um, and we discovered a lot of issues just in that qualitative testing. So for example, uh, you know, there could be an algorithm that um, gives us uh, better initial metrics around our, uh, like around our uh, recall precision internally on our internal data set. But once we um, uh, go to our internal users, we learn something about the algorithm that was non-intuitive. Like it could be doing better, but diversity is a problem. Like it's showing you the same things. Uh, once it passes that, we rely a lot on A/B tests, and uh, you know um, the it goes back to your uh, previous question around metrics. So we measure all kinds of metrics around the ratio of yeses and nos, PDP view, product views, things like that, um, to really um, measure the effectiveness. And then also in changes that are big, we will actually do an A/B test on user surveys and see you know which which group was more satisfied with the experience. So I would say it's sort of a tiered approach of uh, starting with the internal data. Once that passes, kind of internal users, 
and then a ab test now from a user standpoint amit is there an aspect of explainability in terms of why am i seeing this product if i'm if i'm curious um about that uh, yeah. how was that handled today yeah so it's a it's a great question uh you know it, it is a area that we spend a lot of time thinking about um you know one of the um one of the issues with um you know really deep learning models is that they're not always fully explainable in a way that uh, and even if they were uh, they're not fully explainable in a way that the end user would care about um you know uh, so for example you could say well i'm showing this product to you uh, and you have to tie it somehow to a user action in a very direct way and in a user action that the user would respond to um, so for example if you say i'm showing you this product because you clicked on this other product the user might not even remember they clicked on that other product so we spend a lot of time thinking about that and um you know as an example the um you know the, the same example like where we asked the question do you not want to see yellow is in some ways doing two things it's explaining to the user how the algorithm works and it's asking the user for their input and you know we believe that's sort of the right model so we will um uh you know for example let's say the user likes a brand and based on our machine learning algorithms we believe that the um user would want to see another brand based on that but what we can do is we can uh, one show uh, say that you know we are showing you this brand because you like this other brand um or we can actually ask them the question so we we try to do a lot of that tying what we're showing to a actual user action whether it could be a brand that they like it could be a product that they yes um the good thing in 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 our product is that we have enough of these very explicit signals the point i'm making is you want to tie what you're showing to a explicit signal not an implicit signal and so that's the reason we we actually try to get more explicit signals and rely on them rather than having a lot lot of implicit signals that makes sense now i mean the biggest hurdle for ai tends to be data set availability yeah so talking about data set sizes um you know on an average as the customer answers with a yes or a no what what is a typical um i would say tipping point where there is enough for the models to pick up yeah um it's a it's a great question i i'll give you two answers to it uh, one answer is we're still learning you know we 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 don't know the answer to it um the other answer is um but but uh, you, you know i i think our data initial data suggests that uh um we can we can get to a reasonable estimate the tens of data points now this is this is much smaller than what you'd expect a typical machine learning algorithm to work with um but i think um yeah this is partly um all the kind of work that we've done to uh, train with fewer model uh, data points it's also related to the explicitness of the signals that we have um and the way we ask that those questions uh, to the user where they're kind of strategically 
place like for example you know as i told you we show clusters of images and we show three three uh, images in a cluster and we get the data and which uh, whether they like it or not and so those those are very strategically picked based on clustering algorithms so we run clustering algorithms to say what are the important styles and then we can ask the user the right question so we believe it's uh, you know we believe that with uh, tens of questions we can get a pretty accurate uh, understanding of the user now obviously the more data we get the better it gets over time uh, but you know giving them a good first impression we need uh, of the order of tens and, and at a high level here, Amit, um, if you were to sort of think of the the precision versus recall trade-off, and I, I know it's a it's a pretty loaded question, but broadly, is the optimization more towards precision or is it more towards recall? Um, it's it's um, depending on how you frame the problem. It is more towards recall, as I said. You know, I think that users, the, so if you frame the problem as we're trying to remove the bad things, um, in, even in that problem, the optimization is towards uh, kind of, like it's really a bad experience for the user to see something that's polarizing. So we really want to kind of optimize for that. Um, like we're really optimizing for removing the bad stuff and then, um, on the on the rest of the stuff, um, you know, kind of inspiring the user. That's how we see it. So I, I'm actually I'm not sure whether you'd call that precision or recall, but I think it's we're kind of more focused on recall. Got it. And especially if the bad stuff is thought of as false negatives, right? Um, so where you are saying false positives are fine. In fact, it could be an inspiration for for exactly. for, all, for all we know. Um, that, that's an excellent way to look at it. Now, in the journey, Amit, you have been driving the entire entire product, entire engineering team um, in this. What has been most surprising or some of the surprising experiences? And I want to break it into two parts. Things that you thought were more difficult, but it turned out to be easier. And the other set of surprises were things that you thought would be easier or problems you thought were easier but that turned out to be to be more more difficult, um, and, and this could be a technology thing. It could be a team. It could be you know a process. Any 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 aspect in delivering the entire product. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I think that the um, thing that has been easier. I I think that machine learning has come a long way, and um, you know there's a lot of tools out there where you can. Um, make a lot of progress really quickly. And I've, I've been surprised by how far things have come in the last five years. Um, and so it's really easy to solve problems. There's a lot of data out there that you can leverage. There's a lot of tools out there that you can leverage. There's a lot of pre-trained models that you can use. So you don't, no longer is it the case that you have to have a huge infrastructure in place and you have to be a big company to be able to do some very complicated solve some pretty complicated machine learning problems. So I've been surprised by the, by the pace of innovation in this field and how accessible machine learning is. Um, I, I think on the flip side, the hard part is, is sort of um, leveraging machine learning to solve the end user problem. And kind of that end-to-end -end thinking 
uh, of starting with the user problems, starting with the user interface, and in making it work really well, well with machine learning is is hard. And I believe that's where a lot of value comes in. Where um, you know, how do you take an end user problem or an end business problem that user could be a, a consumer and consumer could be a enterprise worker, but how do you, how do you take the problem that they are facing and solve it using machine learning? That is a, that is continues to be a really, really hard uh, problem. Um, and so I think it's that, uh, uh, you know, the, the machine learning has come a long way. Applying machine learning is still hard to solve real problems and surprisingly hard. As you've been building out your team, to, to really go behind this, this challenge and, 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 you know, fantastic set of technology and product challenges here. We'd love to hear, like, you know, what has been some of the skill sets you've been uh, looking to add in the team and generally how, how you're thinking of composing your team as you build this, um, build the product out? Yeah. You know, we, um, we've taken a, uh, uh, we've, we've taken the approach as we build the team uh, that um, you're really starting from the premise that technology is moving at an unprecedented pace. And, uh, you know, it's changing every year. Uh, the things that mattered five years back don't matter any longer. The skills that mattered five years back don't matter any longer. The way things were done five years back are irrelevant today. And so as we build a team, we've, um, that's one thing. The second thing actually is that I do think machine learning is very accessible. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of really hard problems you can solve uh, without being a machine learning expert. Um, so if you think about those two things, we've really tried to build a team that is uh, focused on, you know, our hiring is really focused on problem solvers, uh, end-to-end thinkers, uh, people who want to own things, uh, people who want to learn new things and go outside their comfort zone. Of course, you know, with uh, with great uh, underlying critical thinking and analytical thinking and and design and coding and 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 data aptitude, those are all kind of a given. But beyond that, we've not so we haven't focused so much on specific skills, but more kind of this ability to um, you know learn and go outside their comfort zone and pick up new things and be passionate about solving problems end to end. In other words, and, and we've kind of uh, gravitated towards uh, generalists as we build the team. Um, and um, yeah, I, I believe that's sort of where um, the future is given how fast things are changing. Totally makes sense. I'm curious, Amit, in in a typical uh, interview, what what is the favorite? What is your favorite question you know, for folks you're trying to hire? Well, you know, I end up, uh, you know, I end up usually being um, in an interview. I usually end up being the person who's selling or uh, answering questions or kind of doing a more of a culture uh, check. So I, I love sort of digging into what they've done in the past. Um, and um, what they've uh, uh, accomplished and how they think about problems and uh, you know, what motivates them. Uh, you know, those are really important things to me. So for example, you know, the idea of someone who is really focused on model building 
um, as an example, but not so interested in getting the data together. You know, that profile, for example, is a less interesting profile to us. We, we're really looking for uh, engineers who are very passionate about solving problems rather than working on a specific technology. So, you know, those are the things that I evaluate on. But one of the things that I, when I do do a technical uh, question, you know, actually the questions that I uh, ask are really simple. Um, and, you know, on the lead code simplicity scale, they'll be on this very simple side, but those are, those are questions that really give me an insight into the thought process and the simplicity of the thought process. I really am a big fan of simplicity in everything that we do. And so, you know, the questions that I ask are uh, some, something that can be solved really very simply in three or four lines of code. And, um, and I am looking for candidates who can make those, uh, um, uh, you, you know, step function improvements, starting with a solution that looks complicated, but they can eventually get to the crux of the problem and solve it in, a, in very simple terms. So my, my questions would be really simple. I'm sure you'd, do a, you'd solve them really easily and you'd say they're, they're way too simple, but uh, that's what gives me the most insight. Phenomenal. So as we wrap this up, uh, Amit, we have several listeners who are looking to apply AI in different domains, either they're early in the journey or like you know, further along. What would be you know, two or three key advice you would have for, for folks in their journey to making AI real? Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, I really, uh, some of the things that I said before, I'd repeat them. I, I think number one, start with the problem. Start with the end customer problem, end user problem, whether it's a knowledge worker, whether it's an enterprise worker or an end consumer. What is the problem that you're trying to solve? Uh, that's number one. Number two, keep it simple, uh, you know, there's a lot that can be done with simple things. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of problems that could be solved by simple models. So keep it as simple as possible. Um, and then number three, I would say there's a lot of uh, technology out there, open source and other tools that are available in cloud. Um, and, you know, to the extent possible, don't reinvent the wheel, leverage them. Um, so my advice would be start with the problem and keep it simple. Point on there. Um, Amit, you have done phenomenal in your career with all the amazing things you have done. Um, is there one thing that you would provide as an advice to your younger self yeah. uh, in terms of what you would have done differently? Yeah, I would say, um, <clears throat> um, you know, think bigger um, and be uh, more ambitious with uh, what can be done, you know, I, I, this has been a theme of what I've said is that, you know, technology is moving really, really fast. And, um, you know, it, it's hard for any individual to keep uh, track of it. But, you know, I, it, the criticism I would have of myself is I've been too slow in keeping up with it and too slow in adopting it and too risk averse in adopting it and uh, do uh, risk averse and thinking big of, uh, about what's possible. Super insightful. Amit, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation, learned a lot. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Sandeep. Re really appreciate your questions. Re uh, I had a lot of fun. Thank you.
most people think about AI as a black box algorithm that does magic. We believe that it's actually, uh, it has to work really closely with the user experience. And